the title of the podcast suggests, it takes a village, right? The fertility clinic is going to be the glue, I guess, that brings all these different pieces together and kind of provides a roadmap going forward. But you still have to choose all those various pieces. You still have to load the bus with your team. Today on It Takes a Village, Brian and Ty talk about their bus, how they filled it, who was on it, the shuffle of folks on and off the bus, and some considerations you might have when thinking about filling your own bus. Look at it the most simplistic way possible. You have to have an egg and you have to have a sperm and they have to meet some way to make an embryo. And that's the process. And then any one of those three steps can have a million different permutations, right? And that's where it really comes down to deciding how you want to make your egg, sperm, meat combination. And I guess that's where some of the complexity comes in because for you know, a heterosexual couple that, you know, the woman had ovarian cancer, they still have to find an egg. And for a heterosexual couple that, you know, had the man had orchiectomy because of testicular cancer, they still have to find a sperm donor. Or in a heterosexual couple that they have the egg and the sperm, but it's just not working for some reason, then they have to find the IVF process. And then when you start talking about same-sex couples, you know, all the different permutations apply, which is, you know, maybe we only have sperm, so we need to find an egg donor or uh, uh, two female couple, lesbian couple only has, you know, two eggs, but they need a sperm donor or any permutation of that process. So I imagine sometimes when you go to the, then when you go to the physician's office with that dream of what you want it to be, they might say, okay, well, the reality is we're not going to do it that way. And this is why, right. And that's part of, you know, back to what we've talked about a number of times of like keeping an open mind that your story might change. I imagined that the process of finding a donor was like some high stakes form of online dating. So I asked Brian and Ty to walk me through their process, how they assessed their options and how they ultimately chose their donor. get an egg from their egg donor database. We can reach out to a friend or family. We can reach out to an anonymous donor database. We can talk to any other number of friends that have gone through this process and figure out how they did it. Getting process and you're looking around and you're Googling donor, egg donors, right? You get all of these massive donor banks from around the world that have you know, um, eggs frozen in six packs. In our mind, when we first started this process, we were like, well, we should find a donor bank that has the most donors so that we have the most choices and we can kind of narrow it down. Um, and, and that was, you know, our recommendation ended up not being to go with, with frozen. Um, and there's a lot of different ration, you know, reasons and rationale for that. Um, you can find friend or family. Look at an egg bank where you're buying six packs of, you know, 
frozen eggs. Or you can look at an agency that matches you with a live or frozen donor. And each one is progressively, you know, more expensive. But it's not that having a friend or family is free, because as Brian was describing, friend or family, you still have to pay for the medications, pay for the legal um, contracting that happens, or you should consider seriously consider paying for that legal contracting. So when you think about donor agencies as well, there's so there's the egg bank. That means they've already done, you know, the retrieval of the eggs. They've and they're frozen, right? So you don't have to do that part. It's already done. You can literally just buy them and they ship. But then there's, you know, also the option to go with an outside agency that has tons and tons of donors um, that are that are just people, and you're cruising profiles, kind of like a Match.com. Um, but the egg retrieval hasn't occurred yet. Um, and then, you know, for instance, you know, our, our fertility clinic has their own small internal agency of candidates that the retrieval has not been done yet. And you can choose one of them as well, um, but it's just a smaller, it's a smaller bank. We went with an outside bank out of Los Angeles um, that had more live candidates um, that the retrieval had not been done yet. Um, but also they had pictures and videos all the way into adulthood. Whereas a fertility clinic, they had their smaller bank of candidates, um, but those pictures only went up to like age six, maybe. Um, and so you didn't really, you know, get a get a sense of who that who the adults were. Um, and so we, you know, we just felt more comfortable seeing the videos and um, and and you know pictures and, and just seeing a bigger, more robust profile. And ironically. You know, that was something that was really important to us up front, where we said, you know, we need or we think we need to see adult pictures. We think we need to see videos. We want to know as much about this person as possible. And we're willing to pay the extra money to have a live donation and to get this extra information about our egg donor. You might be wondering about the cost of egg and sperm donation and the complicated, totally unstraightforward answer is, it depends. I'll start with sperm. A vial of donor sperm generally costs between $900 and $1,000. Because it's more medically rigorous and precise, egg donation isn't quite as simple. This is where we start to get into the endless permutations of the process, to use Ty's word. The cost of eggs can vary by agency, state, and if the eggs are fresh or frozen. I'll be outlining the fees for fresh eggs, which was recommended to Brian and Ty by Dr. Green due to the higher success rates for live birth. According to GoStork, a database for surrogacy agencies and fertility clinics, compensation for the donor agency itself can range from $8,000 to $17,000. Now that's the payment for the agency. Then there's the payment for the egg donor who could be compensated anywhere between $10,000 and $40,000, and in some cases, more. 
there are other fees and factors outside of egg donor and agency compensation. There are legal fees, which can land somewhere between $500 and $1,500. Your egg donor will need a medical screening, which can cost between $500 and $1,000. Plus, some clinics charge a premium for donors with high success rates or for donors with high oocyte counts. Keep in mind that these processes do not include any medical procedure, they just include the donations themselves. These are all big numbers and might seem a little bit daunting, but Brian and Ty's advice? Get an Excel spreadsheet and start mapping things out. Like what are the, who's on your bus? Who are the players? What are the costs of each step in the process? And as you listen to the podcast and as you think about like your process, what does this look like on your Excel spreadsheet? When you meet with your fertility doctor, like in the same visit, we met with Dr. Green, we met with the lead fertility nurse, and we met with financing. <laughs> and financing is where they have like a folder. I mean, so but there's options, right? It's not just like you need to come up with X number of dollars in cash. Yeah. There's care credit, there's HSA programs, there's lots of different financing options if you want to go that way. Yeah. Or there's ways to save money. Like you can say, hey, I don't have the money for a surrogate, but I don't know anybody. So maybe I need to go to Canada or maybe I need to go to India. All of that cash is not required upfront. What is required is a long view, a sense of planning, and frankly, a spirit of perseverance, as you'll hear as we get deeper into Brian and Ty's story. When you choose a donor, you then have the, the agency or wherever that donor comes from, or if it's your sister or your family friend, then... Um, there's a, there's a profile in medical records that are sent for review to your fertility clinic. And so they do have the ultimate say to say yay or nay, um, or to kind of, you know, give you a little guidance along that, along that path. And I wouldn't take everything that your fertility clinic says as gospel because... Don't tell Dr. Green that. <laughs> no, even, no, like I'll say we've been very happy with Dr. Green and with his team, but like I said earlier, it's okay to ask questions. And I was just having a conversation earlier this afternoon with a woman who met with the other large fertility clinic in Denver and friends have been told that, you know, because they didn't have an egg and they didn't have a sperm themselves, that they weren't a candidate for the process because they needed to have some genetic stake in the process. And there's plenty, there's a million different permutations. Like we've said, like, let's say you're a single woman and you had uterine cancer and you don't have ovaries or a uterus, you know, you can't contribute genetically or as a surrogate to this process, but that doesn't necessarily mean, or that doesn't mean that you can't be a fantastic, you know, parent to a child. And whether that's a child through adoption or a child through IVF and surrogacy shouldn't matter. And so just because if, if 
your needs aren't being met or your questions aren't being answered, it's okay to go out and ask what other people's process was or ask another fertility clinic what they think about this situation and get a second opinion. Because there's a lot of opinions in, in this field, especially. And if, if it might be that you're totally off the wall and no one does that, and, but at least let three people tell you that before you, you know, uh, let that dream go, I guess. And then as we went through the years of the process with Dr. Green and more conversations with him, he made a very compelling argument that, you know, there's all this research about the environment in which the embryo is growing and the, the hormonal influences on the, in, on the embryo and on the epigenetics and all of the different permutations that are happening as this embryo is growing that you know, out of those billions of combinations, the genetic material is just kind of the genetic material, but it's really the oven or the hormonal milieu that this embryo is growing in that makes more of a difference to the ultimate outcome. So yeah, I think Dr. Green really highlighted, yeah, the importance of the surrogate, which I think initially we had almost thought of was like, not as important. Like, oh, this embryo, the, you know, the genetic contributors to this embryo are really the most important things. It's, it is who it is. And then you just put it inside the surrogate and it grows, you know? And I think, or at least that's how I viewed it. Um, and I think his point was, is that the, the surrogate impacts that embryo and makes it a different human than that same embryo would have been in a different surrogate or in the egg donor's body. Right, like so. So it's 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 not um, it's not the same thing. Ultimately, Brian and Ty went with an egg donor that they would be able to use for two future children. The plan was to fertilize one egg with Brian's sperm and another with Ty's sperm, so that the kids were biological siblings. Pretty cool, right? When we envisioned the surrogacy process, I think because we had just gone through the donor process, we had imagined it was going to be the same. Like we would have this match.com type, you know, looking through tons and tons of profiles. The, the surrogacy agency that, that we went with was different. We created a profile and they give you a template and recommendations and, and you create this very extensive profile on, on who you are and who you want your family to be and pictures. And, um, and then you kind of wait. And they do a little bit of matchmaking behind the scenes and they send you one profile and then you get their templated, you know, um, profile. And then you look at all their pictures and you say to each other like, okay, I don't know what you think. <laughs> we went into it wanting to have some connection and some relationship with our surrogate as the process went forward. We wanted someone local so that we would have interaction with her and her family. We wanted to create a relationship. We wanted to be a part of the growth of our embryo and a part of the birth process. And go then doctor's have, appointments. Yeah, go to doctor's appointments together and, you know, 
talk about diet and exercise and her needs and her family's needs and, and kind of be involved in the whole, you know, pregnancy process with her and then potentially have some sort of relationship with her afterwards. Similar to egg donor compensation, surrogacy compensation is anything but straightforward or flat across the board. Sam Hyde, the president of Circle Surrogacy in Boston, breaks down the cost of surrogacy by a few different categories. There's the surrogate mother compensation, which can be anywhere between twenty-five dollars and $45,000, and in some cases, up to $60,000. The insurance, depending on policies, is between $15,000 and $20,000. Plus, you've got the professional agency fees, which, uh, give or take five dollars to $10,000, can be around $50,000. The agency fee includes legal work, social work, accounting work, and program coordination, as you can imagine that a nine-month period of gestation plus everything before and after takes a lot of work. We chose a surrogate. They said the connection was immediate and they saw a huge potential for developing a relationship beyond the surrogacy. We had matched with a woman and her family. They were local. Um, we developed a relationship over the course of six or eight months and she took out an implantable birth control, which has a high uh, hormone level circulating systemically. And so she didn't get her period for like eight months after they took this thing out. And so we were developing this relationship and having dinner with her and her husband and her son and traveling back and forth to each other's homes. And, and then when she finally uh, had her first period, they signed her up for her hysteroscopy, which is a scope kind of up inside the uterus to look at the uterine lining and the cervix and, and all of that. And turned out she had scar tissue. And so she was disqualified. And so we had built this beautiful relationship with her and her husband and with her son. And, and it really like looked forward to them being a part of our kind of long-term path. Her was still able to conceive another baby on, on her own for their family. And um, so we've kept in touch with them all this time and they know some of the struggles we've had and um, and they were, you know, so excited to congratulate us when Leo was born. Um, and they just texted the other day and said, you know, their, their second son has done breastfeeding now and they have leftover breast milk and they were offering us leftover breast milk if, you know, we were still, still in need and, and feeding Leo. And so I feel like there is still a little bit of a beautiful lining to sure. that story. Like that Absolutely. relationship was, um, you know, this is maybe weird to say, but it was like almost like first love, you know? We had such a, a beautiful hopes and dreams for what was going to happen um, there and it, it didn't work out. And we both went on, you know, our merry ways and, and, and still enjoy the friendship. Next time on It Takes a Village, we meet surrogate number two and three. 
Stay with us.